So, you know, the core of our business is people. So managing our people and looking after our people, that is, you know, that's priority number one. The culture is the responsibility of every single person in the organisation. Um, and without everyone committed to a positive culture, then you start to see bad things emerging. In terms of priorities, uh, strong and positive culture is a critical priority for this role. Yeah, and it's, it's fundamental to what we do. You need to look at your culture to make sure your culture reflects those expectations that people will have coming in. And panic's never going to serve anyone. And I think you know, being able to operate in uh, complex or dynamic environments and maintain a level of calm assists everyone around you. Um, it helps people focus. Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high-profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons and their secrets to success. Today on the show, we have Grant Stevens, Commissioner of Police of South Australia and State Coordinator for the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode is a big one. And in 2021, Grant was named by the advertiser as the number one most influential person in South Australia. And over the past couple of years, he's graced our TV screens almost on a daily basis as the state coordinator for the COVID-19 pandemic, where his leadership skills were on display, being composed, calm, steady, and providing clear direction. Grant has been Commissioner of South Australia of Police since 2015, and with 36 years of general and specialist policing experience and over a decade as a member of SAPOL's senior executive team, Grant has personally led and delivered some of SAPOL's most significant programs. Top of his agenda at the moment is improving employee well-being, gender equality, and the elimination of discrimination and harassment in the workplace. There is no understating at how chuffed I was when Grant agreed to come on the show. And over the past couple of years, he's been the voice of reason. And I must admit, I've had a, probably a little bit of a crush on this guy. And let me tell you, friends, he's absolutely lived up to the standard. He is an absolute legend. We got the opportunity to chat about his journey over the years and his many unplanned steps to get him to the top role in police. I picked his brain on his leadership style and how he managed to stay so level-headed throughout the pandemic. We talked about the recruiting challenges that face SA Police currently. He also explained why he has a picture of Bart Simpson in his office and how counting pairs of socks at Target changed his life. This conversation is jam-packed with real-world leadership insights and it gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how one of the most prominent people in South Australia led our state through a once-in-a-century pandemic. You'll love how down-to-earth and committed and easygoing Grant is. And so without further ado, here is my chat with Grant Stevens. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, Managing Director of Synergy IQ and host of Creating Synergy. Today we've got a very, very well-known man in the South Australian circles and Australian circles, uh, Commissioner of Police, Grant Stevens. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for the invitation. Uh, very, very excited to have you here. It's been uh, on the cards for a while now and finally got you in the room. So very happy to start off and to understand you and understand the trajectory of your life and how you've ended up being, you know, the, the commissioner of police. What do we need to understand about your earliest context? Uh, well, I suppose to start off, um, 
how I became the commissioner of police is a question I ask myself a lot. <laughs> uh, but from a from an early days con, uh, sort of context, uh, I had what you describe as a pretty normal childhood. Um, uh, I would say I was a at best an average student through my schooling career, uh, and I put that down to having no sense of direction. Um, so I didn't see any real need or sort of imperative to apply myself in school. And I think every report that I had through my high school days uh, made a reference to having could have could be doing better, um, too Speak, social. Speaking too much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, should sit closer to the front, you yeah. know, needs to engage more. Uh, I, I wasn't a terrible student but yeah. I just, you know, I, I don't think I took advantage of the opportunity to the extent yeah. that I could. And uh, on finishing school, I started work uh, almost immediately. I had a, an after-hours, after-school hours job uh, at a, a Target at Tea Tree Plaza and they offered me employment virtually straight away when I finished school. So I went from school straight into work and it was probably an early call on my part but I didn't think retail was a career path <laughs> I was interested in after about six months. I worked – I did Harris Scarf. Oh, there you go. I think yeah. in the same sort of area that you worked in which was like men's retail. I, well, I started off in uh, China and Glass but uh, oh, did you? interestingly go. I was moved very quickly from China and Glass into men's menswear very so good. less damage. Yeah, I, I think I lasted a week. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I took a I took a, a, a half day off um, very close to the end of the year in uh, 1981 and I, I was just coming in to see what was available. I, I was going to visit the police, uh, maybe the army, uh, the fire brigade, and yep. just, just see what they were offering. And I happened to go to the police headquarters first and I walked into the recruiting section just as they were trying to find a few more people to complete a cadet course starting in January 1982. Yep. Um, and they turned me around very quickly through the recruiting process and I found myself standing on the steps of police headquarters having accepted a position <laughs> on a cadet course Wondering what the hell I'd done. So <laughs> that escalated. Yeah, it did. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ron Burgundy. Yeah, that. absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I went home and told my parents. My mum was horrified. Yeah. Uh, she was very worried about um, policing as a yeah. career and the people, the risks that people attribute to policing. Mm-hmm. And I started down at the academy um, in January 1982, and very quickly um, found that you know, there's a really strong connection with that vocation mm-hmm. and that connection created the imperative that I lacked in school and, you know, the, the study, uh, the drive, the motivation just came really naturally. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did quite well through the cadet course and uh, graduated like everyone does. Uh, at that time it was a two-year course, uh, graduated and went on to patrols and uh, uh, it, that's where it all started. So I found myself in policing virtually by accident. There was no long, long-term ambition to join the police, no family connection to policing. And uh, that was the start of my career in South Australia Police. Brilliant. I um, was sitting at my table last night having dinner with my family and uh, I, asked, I asked my children, I said, you know Grant Stevens, the Commissioner of Police, that you've seen him on the TV? And they went, yeah. I said, what's one question that you have that you would like to ask Grant? And I feel like it fits in so tightly with what we've just been talking about. And my daughter asked me, my daughter Isla, she said, ask him what's one childhood memory that he looks back on and smiles? One childhood memory. Um, uh, we, uh, uh, my parents' property had uh, quite a bit of land attached to it and there was a creek running through it and we had this massive tree that me and a few friends tied a 
rope swinging and we had a steel bar as the handle and this this swing became more and more aggressive or dangerous and one of one of my mates who was a bit shorter than the rest of us adjust, adjusted the knot on the swing and he got up into the tree and he jumped out and his hands slipped or the the, the bar slipped in oh. and he just went face first into the creek bed oh, ouch. and I still laugh at that when I think about it so yeah that, that's a, that's about, a childhood memory there's something about people falling over and hurting themselves yeah yeah, yeah. as long as it's not you it's funny <laughs> exactly so. I have a similar one where where uh, I think it was one. One New Year's evening and one of my very good friends, uh, we were an 18-year-old, I think. We were around 18 at the time. And um, as you do, you get into a bit of mischief and you knock on doors and do the knock and yeah, run sort yeah. of thing. And, and, my, and my mate knocked on the door and he tripped over the, the porch step, laid flat on the, yeah. on the ground and the person came out and see this guy just <laughs> laying on the ground. So it was a very, very funny time. Uh, I, I want to ask one question. You talked about um, Target and working in the retail section. I want to ask about counting socks and yeah. what what that had and what impact yeah, well, that, that had. That was that was probably the catalyst for taking uh, a, a half a day off to find out what my options were. It was a, a stock take um, on a Saturday afternoon. This is back when um, retail stores closed at midday on Saturdays, and we had to do a stock take in the afternoon. And I was given the job of counting the socks, and there was racks of socks. <laughs> And I can't remember right. pairs the, of socks, or it, you had to sort them into no, pairs. No, or they, it was they, just no, they, they were all on display. Okay, but for stock taking purposes, we needed to know how many were there. Yeah. So my job was to count them, and uh, I can't remember the exact number. It was somewhere <laughs> like you know one thousand three hundred pairs of socks. Yeah. Wow. And my manager, um, when I went to her with the number of socks, said, "No, that can't be right. Do it again." <laughs> and I think that was a pivot point for me in terms of Grant Stevens and retail not being a good yeah, fit. It's not I, it was a premature call on my part, but uh, you know. <laughs> If you look back, I suppose it was a pretty good call in it's hindsight. Intersection in your life. You are a, you are a family-focused man. You say you, you you have a pretty normal upbringing. You've uh, moved into a world now where you have five children. Yeah. The other other week I was in your office and we were discussing the podcast and I saw a picture of Bart Simpson on the, yeah. on the wall. Can you explain what that represents in your life? Uh, that was drawn by my youngest son. Um, now that must have been – he's 17 now, so yeah. it must have been at least eight or ten years ago. Yeah. It's quite a good and drawing for him. He, 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 he was very proud of it yeah. and, uh, and so was I. And <laughs> I had the option of using the picture of Bart Simpson that he drew or uh, when he was in um, about the same time in primary school, they had a Father's Day thing where they had to draw pictures of their dads yeah. and I went along as we all did. And, and looking for the picture of me, <laughs> a good drawn man. by a strapping dra- man, yeah. drawn by my youngest son, <laughs> and my son was the only one who had to use the grey crayon for the dad's <laughs> hair. So, yeah, I'm still hurt by that. <laughs> it still wouldn't be like mine. There'd be no hair at all. Uh, well, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, the lesser of two evils, I yeah, suppose. That's yeah. right. That's brilliant. So, as a as a father, obviously, that I think what that pointed out to me was. You're clearly a father, like a family man and, and a proud father of, at that as well. And you hear that a lot through your media and your talk mm. and often refer to, to the family and, and all the interviews you have done. If, well, as a father and as a husband, how would you like your family to think of you? Well, I suppose um, I'd, I'd like them to be proud of what I do mm-hmm. uh, and I think my family are. Um, 
and it, I'm sure it must be challenging for my my kids as they've gone through school mm-hmm. with the the job, particularly my younger children. When I've had a, a a larger profile in South Australia, that that wouldn't have been easy all the time. But my kids are pretty balanced as well, so I think they've been able to take that in their stride. But I'd I'd hope that they're proud of me for what I've achieved through work. But more importantly, that they think I'm a good dad. Mm. That um, they um, they feel like I've been there for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've, it, it's not always the case that you can be there for every single thing, but it's always been a sort of a, a central focus for me is to um, make sure I'm there for all the important stuff. And you know, even in my earlier days as an executive, I'd make sure I was home for dinner and you know, drop the kids off to school whenever I could. Get to those you know horrible Christmas. Uh, uh, shows that yeah. the kids do, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. Um, it's cheesy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, that, that's that is genuinely great sacrifice sitting yeah. through those things. But uh, <laughs> as a parent, it's really important that you're there. You know, you watch your kid on stage for two and a half minutes, and then you sit there for another two hours watching yeah. everyone else's kids. Yeah. But that's, I, I'd hope that they think I've been a good dad. Do, how do you realize your visions in life and in your career? and manage the time with your family and how does it intertwine for you? Mm. Um, I'd, I'm not sure if it's a deliberate thing. Uh, I think it's either who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been times in my in my professional life where the, the work obligations have had to take priority um, and it's about knowing that that's, that's not the, the status quo, that's not the norm mm-hmm. and switching switching back to what is important and that is family. Um, being there for all of those important things and being engaged, um, being being present and not letting that work demand um, override you know, your, your obligations to your family because you know, there's the old saying, no one no one lies on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time at work. Yeah, so and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sense in that. So just I think a lot of people do it naturally. Um, some some professional responsibilities have the potential to drag you away. It's about knowing when it's necessary and when it's not. Yeah. Just a quick note, this episode is brought to you by Synergy IQ, leaders in enabling change. Synergy IQ are the ones you call when the change or challenge seems so complex and you don't know where to start. But more importantly, we're the ones you call when you want to make a change that will actually last. If you want to check them out, it's at synergyiq.com.au. I guess that question comes from, like I run a business, Synergy IQ is the business that owns creating Synergy and I can get caught up in mm. the moment of work and I can get caught up in the I need to do this, therefore naturally the family's love is unconditional, mm. that's the part that will sacrifice the most and that's a choice. Uh, I am and have been working really hard on making sure I, I've never missed a basketball game. Yeah. So I, I do, I'm really proud of this sort of stuff when it comes to the sporting and, and anything that they do outside of school, I'm always there. But I guess with your situation, the choice isn't always there, right? You, yeah. It is I have to do this as part of my role. How do you manage that and how does your family well, I'm, I'm, understand that? I'm probably not u- unique. Um, there's a lot of people who work shift work. Uh, and you know, that shift work obligation takes you away from your family during the times when other other parents mm. 
you know, the nine to five yeah. you know, arrangement five, five, yeah. permits you to be there for every weekend activity or every evening activity. That's that's a that's a consequence of being involved in an industry that requires a twenty four seven response. But the um, the obligations of the senior leadership roles um, they are more insidious in the way that they encroach mm. because you take work home with you yeah. or you spend more time at the office to get things done. Or you, and in this particular role, there's a lot of um, um, engagements that occur after hours that you have to participate in. So it's about keeping um, keeping it in the forefront of your mind that there's got to be a separation between work and family, yeah. and also acknowledging that, as I said, there are times when you need to make that commitment to work. You know, if you're if you're establishing a new business, then you are going to have to invest more in in that in it at that time than you will in the into the future. So, yeah. you know, it's almost like you're borrowing from that credit. Time, yeah, yeah you're, you're borrowing that credit from the, the that you have with your family because of the pre previous investment. Yeah, but you'll be paying it back, and you yeah. should be paying it back. Yeah. And you know, it's about recognizing that a lot of people talk about work life balance. Yeah, and I don't prescribe to that concept yeah. it, because for me it suggests work is something separate to life. Mm. Uh, it's about balance generally and it's never going to be 50-50. Mm. Uh, it should always be that the family gets more of your time than work does yeah. but there will be times during your career that you have to invest more in work, whether it's to study for a particular promotional opportunity or, you know, in an emergency management sense when you're going to be working 15 hours a day because yeah. of a you know, a bushfire threat or something. Yeah, that's that's the balance Correct. And, and making sure you maintain a perspective on where your time is best spent. Yeah. It's a bit like be be fluid, right? Be fluid yeah. with your time. and But you just yeah. want to make sure that that glass is not tilted too much to one side. Yeah. Well, and I'm, you know, I, I firmly believe in that approach, but you know, I'm as guilty as anyone as mm. to having let it slip. And yeah. it's it's not so much in the time, in my time as a manager. I think I've maintained a pretty good perspective there. But it was when I was in the, the drug squad, um, you know, the, the work was dynamic. It was really interesting. Mm. Uh, we were working with a really good group of people who were just as as committed to the job as I was and, you know, there was a real tendency to um, hang around at work a lot more, get involved in jobs and, and not not pull stumps when you, you probably should. Yeah. Um, so, that, you know, I, I reflect on that time and thinking, you know, I, I probably lost a little bit of balance there. Yeah. I think that goes with any – I mean, it goes to the point of you said – before, which is starting the new business and mm. you're invested into it. There's this element of love when you start your own business. You yeah. love yeah. what you do. You're enjoying it. And not everyone lo- has the luxury of loving what they do, but you obviously really enjoyed mm. your role. But I think that's probably where the – because you hear, you know, Steve Jobs and all these people, they all come out and they say, love what you do, love what you do. And mm. yes, absolutely. But loving what you do <laughs> can also mean that this that, – part of your life is going to be sacrificed, such as family, doesn't it? Because it's like, I actually love what I'm doing. I, this, this is my hobby as well yeah, as my yeah, job. Yeah. I want to spend more time here. Yeah, and it's just reminding yourself what's important. Correct. Yeah. And knowing when to invest in different parts yeah. parts of your life. We talked about work-life balance and, you, you know, I know you don't prescribe. I'm much of the same. It all just blends into one beautiful mm. ecosystem. I, I do want to ask you about, what people's viewpoint are in your life, in your outside of work life, personal life. 
and and the role that nepotism might come into it where you know people are asking you for favors mm. as you know commissioner of police and i know you know integrity is going to be high in your value set is it something that you have experienced where people have said, oh, I've got a spending fine, can you get me off? Or like is there uh, any – Those sorts of things are pretty easy to yeah. dismiss. Uh, yeah. Your true friends don't ask you that. Exactly. It, it's it's people who for some reason have your phone number in their contacts list <laughs> that you never hear from. Mm. Yeah, they're the ones – you know, you'll get that out-of-the-blue phone call from a, an acquaintance. Yeah. You know, G'day, Grant, how are you going? How's things? How's the family? Oh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah. No, sorry, yeah. mate. Can't do that. Old school mates. <laughs> yeah. <back in> the... <laughs> yeah. So that that does happen but um, it's pretty easily Yeah, I, yeah. it would be. And, and seriously, true friends, you know, Don't they do ask that. for advice, which yeah. is what, what friends are there for. But, you know, they've never been comp- – never – there's never been a true friend that's tried to compromise. Yeah, and hundred percent. And I think that's the same is true for business owners who are starting in that world. I mean, the best way to support anyone who, like, who you know is starting their own business is actually to buy their product and buy it yeah. at full price. Yeah, yeah. Do not ask for discount. Do like it's about supporting them in their role and helping them promote and do all the above. There's a bit of tall poppy syndrome here in South Australia where that doesn't happen as much as we would like. Yeah, true. I think that's um, that's probably an Australian phenomenon rather than yeah, just South Australia. that's true. So what was it like through the early years of being a police officer and, and, and you know, the decisions that you've made along the way, obviously into the trajectory of becoming police commissioner, were they – were they thoughtful? Were they with the intent of or consciously with the intent of becoming the, the top dog one day or was it the just potluck that you ended up where you are? Um, <laughs> I'd like to think more than potluck but it was it was never like a, a career plan to be the commissioner of police. Well, yeah. when, I, when I graduated from the academy in uh, December 1983, uh, my, I'd achieved my goal of becoming a police officer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's such a diversity of roles that you can undertake that um, I just I was just having a ball coming to work. It was great fun. Yeah. It was um, interesting work, uh, good people, a really solid team, um, you know, doing foot patrols in the city, um, you know, uh, car patrols, then moving out into the northern suburbs. It was yeah. a completely different style of work out there, um, different people. Um, so I just – it was – Almost day by day, mm. uh, turning up to work, having having a good time, um, and really enjoying the work we were doing. And it was after a couple of years, I um, I started to think about what what's after patrols. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have a plan when I started as a police officer of what would come after those first couple of years. And I decided to um, pursue a career in the CIB as a detective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I took that step. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that. It was just. Um, an evolution of my policing career, I suppose. There was no deliberate um, pathway that I was I'd set out. So, after having been a detective in in regional or metropolitan CIBs, um, I then moved into the specialist squads. Did a little bit of time in the major crime investigation area, investigating homicides, and then into the the drug investigations, which was just excellent. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this uh, opportunity came up, not one that I'd planned for. Or envisaged, but I had a chance to become involved in training other police officers in relation to drug investigations. So I took that step, and that led to more exposure with senior managers, um, and that resulted in a promotion into the intelligence arena. An unplanned step, that, yeah. you know, an opportunity presented, and I took the step. Yeah. That led to um, 
uh, me being able to apply for and uh, get onto the inspector's course, which was the course that develops you to become a commissioned officer, one of the senior managers. Um, And if I'm honest, um, I don't think I really thought about being the commissioner until I was appointed the deputy commissioner. So that was in 2012 and it's, it's, uh, I knew then that the commissioner of the day was only going to be the commissioner for three years. Mm-hmm. He'd made that quite clear and I was his deputy um, and that was the realisation that there's a real possibility here that I might end up as the commissioner if, if, if the cards fall the right way. Yeah. Um, and Gary Burns, who was the commissioner, um, essentially provided me a three-year opportunity to develop and prepare for that opportunity. Yeah, amazing. I want to I want to jump back to patrols, and I think I heard an interview with you. It might have been with Hornsey or mm. one of the interviews, many that you've done. And you said that in your first time as a patrol officer, you experienced this sense of overwhelm, and mm. uh, and, and going out onto onto site or wherever it may have been. And then as I'm listening to you sort of as you sort of rising amongst the ranks is this that initial sense of overwhelm when you're on site and all of a sudden, you know, you're in potential conflict situ- conflicting situations mm. that aren't so comfortable. And as you rise up those ranks, the sense of overwhelm will only become more and more and more just with the more knowledge that you know. Mm. You know the old saying, the more you know, the more you realise, the less you know. Yeah, so yeah. as you go up those ranks, what I'm really interested in is, is that something that, has naturally come to you uh, and through experience, the, the dealing with the sense of overwhelm, or is it is it something that the police do really well in training their staff on on managing that? Uh, I think it's a more of a personal approach. Um, you know, we all step out of the academy at this you know, with the same training, the same skills, the same qualification, and people react differently to the situation. And, and I still remember that first day. You know, the first day out of the academy as a probationary constable, um, it's a totally foreign environment. You're working with a completely different group of people, and this this is where it gets real. Yeah. You know, you're now you're now there to do the job. It's not training. There's no safety net. Um, there's no just a you know reset the the assessment. Mm. You, you're doing it, yeah. and it, it it does. I'd challenge anyone to say they wouldn't be confronted by that yeah. um, that scenario where. Yeah, it's time to step up. Yeah, and it doesn't take long for that to dissipate either. Yeah. You know, once you you know you're involved in those operational activities and you think, well, the training has prepared me for this, yeah. and the people I'm working with are there to support me, yeah. then you become more confident, confident, and you, you start to take those steps. So um, as you as you move through um, that sense of trepidation or um, imposter syndrome, yeah. yeah, that's 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 a real thing. Like. Yeah, I remember yeah, my first appointment as an assistant commissioner. So first occasion that I've been um, appointed into the executive. You know, I I was probably sitting there thinking, why me? You know, what, have, what have I – how do I do this job? Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to sort of – in some respects you've got to jump in, you know, yeah. back yourself and take those first steps. Know you're going to make mistakes but be prepared to learn from them. Mm-hmm. Imposter syndrome is something that is very prevalent in the world, and yeah. it, 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 this is a business podcast, so especially in business, and I, I suffer from it <laughs> mm. on a daily basis. I got asked, I get asked 
to speak and host events and whatnot and every single time like out of everyone in the world yeah. <laughs> you've chosen me that doesn't make sense um <laughs> i've lived that experience yeah um and probably never more so than um yeah as the commissioner of police like yeah. i'm i'm just grant stevens yeah you know, i'm obviously i i do okay in the policing context yeah. but uh I, I still have to you know i challenge the decision making that saw someone appoint me as the commissioner of police. Yeah, so, it's like, uh, what were you I, I love my job and I think I'm doing okay, yeah. but uh, yeah, imposter syndrome's a, a real thing, and you you, you got to move past that. You know, mm. and it you, you do have to back yourself, um, and that that takes um, a bit of courage sometimes. But and I do remember uh, as the deputy commissioner, um, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, the commissioner Gary Burns about some of the strategic challenges we had, some of the operational issues, some of the the, the, the difficulties that we as an organisation were dealing with, some of the, you know, government decisions, policy things that we had to implement. And I'd give my advice and we'd have some pretty decent conversations and at the end of that conversation, I'd turn around and walk out of his office and I left the decision with him. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I sat in that chair as my chair. And even relieving doesn't give you the same sense Correct. of uh, trepidation. But once you own the job and it's yours, that's when you realise the significance of the decisions that you have to make. And it doesn't matter how much advice you get from people, you're still accountable for the decision. Yeah. So, I think there's conversations I have with CEOs on a daily basis mm. is, is that exact experience. As you sit there... You want someone to turn to. I think this is why they invented boards and yeah, they're all yeah. the above. It's just I need someone to turn to. Yeah. I actually need someone that I can just seek advice off and the importance of mentors and coaches mm. and all that come into play. Yeah. Now, so I thought I thought I knew the, the full extent of the role of Commissioner of Police because of my close relationship with the previous Commissioner. But it's only when you take ownership of the job that you truly understand the uh, the, the complexities and the, the challenges that go with the role. Still sort of progressing up the ladder in your career. So hence, we're going to drop back slightly mm. a, a bit again. I want to ask you, and you actually told me not to ask you this question, but I'm going to ask you <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about the Penske files. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take the fifth. <laughs> when we caught up a couple of weeks ago, we talked about your approach um, and how – that your car was – you were the first person at work every single day and you were the last person to leave every single day. How true is that? Oh, that may have been the perception. Um, and it, it, I didn't do it delib- deliberately to to, to um, deceive people that I was there first and out last. I, I decided in, in order to try and maintain a level of fitness that I'd ride my bike to and from work. Yeah. But because I needed my uniform and other other stuff, I'd drive in on a Monday, park my car in the car park with my bike in the back of the car and then ride to and from and then drive home on Friday night. Yeah. And it created this perception amongst some of my peers <laughs> that I was uh, burning the candle at both ends and <laughs> I, cho- I chose not to correct their perception. <laughs> I love it. And was it was it true that your your boss came up, came up to you and – he said, what's going on? I said, what do you mean? He said, your car's here all the time. Uh, 
And I said, well, Gary, we do what we do. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't lie to him. No, um, but he figured it out pretty quickly. Oh, the walking yeah. around with a piece of paper, all of the above yeah. would have come into play. Yeah. That's hilarious. You didn't sleep under the desk at any point, though. No, no, <laughs> the desk was never big enough to sleep under. <laughs> For and those who don't know, we are referring a lot to Seinfeld. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah absolutely. An episode uh, where George um, uh, was pretending to be busy, yeah. hence the Penske files. Look, as... I've never pretended to be busy. No, that's right. You're uh, always busy. Yeah. Correct, as you would be um, in your role. Look, as part of the police training, uh, communication would be seriously mm. one of the the greatest weapons that you have in your repertoire. Absolutely, when, yeah. When walking out into yeah, it's, it's, that's that's the first thing we expect police officers to use before they start thinking about other tactical options. Um, um Communication is a key part of being a police officer, and it's not just about confronting situations, but it's about um, you know getting information from witnesses and victims. You, know, you have to be empathetic. You have to you have to be able to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good communication is a, an absolute essential for a, a good police officer. I'm obviously uh, have the right to assume that that's what is highly taught in those trainings, right? Yeah. When you say, yep. Um, I'm going to rely on my training. Can you talk to us about the art of communication and what you are taught in your career uh, as an early police officer and and how that might apply to those in business and dealing with conflict, dealing with tough situations, dealing with influence, all that sort of thing? I think um, uh, our focus on communication now is as, as in terms of what we provide for our recruits, is probably far more sophisticated than what we had when I went through the academy. Um, you know, that was a long time ago and the, the training was probably consistent with the times in terms of the level of complexity that went with policing. Uh, but it's built into all of our leadership programs, uh, detective training. Yeah, every opportunity we get to bring people in as a group for development, then a part of that will be communication and it's particularly relevant to certain parts of the work we do mm. um, and detectives are a really good example of that. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the fundamental skill that detectives have is the ability to uh, talk to people and listen and synthesise information and make the most of it. Mm. Um, and you get into our leadership development and communication is a really important part. It would be. Have you do you, um, have you ever read Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference? No. It's a, it's a, it's a really great book and I recommend it to anyone listening it is Chris Voss was a, a detective and um, a oh, what do they call it? Uh, is it when someone's held ransom or something like that? It was a negotiator, hostage, a hostage negotiator. negotiator. That's all right. Um, so he he and he's written a book on all mm. the techniques that they were taught in those situations and how to deep yeah uh, to debunk a situation. I guess if that's the right word. Do you? I mean, you 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 love your job. And you've done some amazing things. You've worked um, across all many different departments, and and we, including HR, which we will I want to yep. touch on in a yep. sec. But you said, and I've heard you say previously that one of the most proud moments in your career was the discovery of some of the sex crimes against children, mm. and and you know putting these bad yeah. guys away. On that topic, you would have seen some pretty horrific things in your time. That wouldn't sit with your value set. How do you compartmentalise? Uh, that's that's actually a tough question to answer. I'm not sure how you do. Like we, 
once again, sort of going back to my time as a, a trainee and, a, and a, a junior officer and a detective, we were far less sophisticated in terms of the support we provided as an organisation to our people and a lot of it was you know, relying on your own coping mechanisms to deal with some of the stuff that you had to experience. Um, but I, I don't think there'd be a single police officer out there that hasn't had um, dozens of uh, traumatic experiences uh, that they've had to deal with. Um, the average person you know, might have one or two significant incidents in their life that really has the potential to traumatise them, but yeah. police officers are dealing with it almost on a daily basis, you know, dozens and dozens of occasions when, you know, the potential for their harm to their own psychological well-being is, is there. A lot of it is about personal resilience, I think, um, but organisationally we're far more tuned into that now and, we're, you know, we're, we're educating our people to recognise when they're not travelling well, um, what support networks are available to them and encouraging people to take advantage of those those support mechanisms. Not an easy thing because there is still a stigma attached to um, uh, mental health issues. Yeah. And if you're struggling with the nature of the work, um, it's not an easy thing to put your hand up. I, I recognise that. I wish it wasn't the case um, because you can't, you can't rely on personal resilience. You know, we're all wired differently and we can all deal with a whole heap of stuff but you never know what is going to be the thing that uh, triggers a, a, a reaction that puts you under stress. Um, that's that's the nature of policing. And you know, I've seen a lot of things that float back through my head at different times and child sexual abuse is one of those um, you know, child exploitation images. Um, I'd, I'd absolutely take my hat off to people who dedicate their professional life to investigating child sexual abuse. I've seen a lot of stuff and... Some pretty horrific stuff, but the stuff that seems to uh, impact me most is um, child sexual abuse. My wife worked in child protection, um, and I never forget the first week she worked in child protection. Mm. Uh, she came home, and there was a case where literally that week a child had passed away, mm. and um, she didn't go into all the details but she told me roughly the scenario and I remember thinking at that point, I love my bubble. <laughs> I, I, mm. I actually don't want to know about what you are going to see and mm. I think we made a decision as a family at that point. It's like you can't bring that stuff home. Yeah. You cannot I – can, I cannot hear it um, because it actually affects me and, I, and the – I mean, social media these days is pretty. Uh, if you if you go on Twitter or Reddit or any of these, mm. you can look up anything and see videos of, of what happens out in the streets. And I and I've seen some of these videos, and I, I I cannot get those images out of my mm. head watching it on on a on a screen, let alone someone talking to me about it. When yeah. You, when you talk about mental health, how do you manage a workforce that is seeing these traumatic things on a daily basis? Well, that's that's. It, we we invest heavily into um, the well-being of our people, mm. but despite the amount of money we invest, you know, I could probably double it and spend it wisely. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, from the very beginning, from you know, even even in terms of our selection processes for people that we are looking to recruit, we're doing the psychometric testing to make a, a 
get some indication of their ability to deal with traumatic situations, um, personal resilience, stress management, because we, we have a pretty good understanding of the sorts of things they're going to be exposed to mm. once they get out from the academy. So it starts as early as that and then it's about a constant um, application of those wellbeing principles and providing access to the, the right supports. Um, it's, it, it's something we are deeply concerned about mm. um, and like I said, we, don't, we, we just don't want to leave people to rely on their own resources yeah. or their own personal resilience to get through this stuff. You know, we, we need them to do the job they do yeah. and uh, we need to make sure they're capable of doing it day in, day out. And I think the day in, day out bit is the part that um, how, mm. do you, how do you show up every day at work switching on? Like is there an on and off switch that you have? Um, look, yes, there should be. Yeah. But if I, if I think personally, I'm, I'm not sure about the on-off switch. I don't think I ever switch off, yeah. particularly in these yeah. senior roles. Like the, It is a constant thing. You, know, you, you, you don't hang your hat up as you're walking out of the office at 5 o'clock as the commissioner and not think about it till 8 o'clock the next morning. Phone's always ringing. Um, even when the phone's not ringing, you're thinking about things because you know, there's a lot of complexity in mm. the size of the business we are. And um, so I don't think there is a genuine on-off switch. And if you love what you do, it's hard to switch off. And if you are um, motivated by what you do as well, you know, it's, it's, it's just not that black and white. Yeah, no. It's you know, if you're... Yeah, if you're in a job you don't enjoy, or it's relatively straightforward, or you know, very process oriented, maybe that's the case. But when you're talking about complex, dynamic, um, fast moving situations, uh, you know, stressful situations, then you never really switch off. Mm. I don't think. And in my context, and I'm sure I, I can speak for a lot of police officers, once you've been in for a while, uh, being a police officer becomes part of who you are, mm. and there's a sense of pride that goes with that. Yeah. But it really changes how you see yourself and how other people see you. So, you know, you're talking about friends asking you about the job. There's not too many social functions police officers go to where someone doesn't come up to them yeah. and talk about the job. Yeah. So even in that social context, if you have switched off, there's probably there someone flick, flicking the switch oh, back I had on a wedding on Friday, uh, Saturday last on the weekend just passed and uh, there was a police officer – Sitting across the table from me is a friend. I won't mention names, but um, talking about decom and all the above, and yeah. I was just like, "Yeah, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> yeah. I do not know how." Because I, I think about my position as a CEO, leader of a business, and like you know, there might be a legal thing, or there might be a conversation with a client that didn't go well, mm. or uh, we lost a job or a big tender that we put forward, and like the disappointment that I take home sometimes. Mm. My wife can read it on my face the moment I walk through the door. My kids can sense that, well, dad just needs it, you know, probably just to go for a run or something yeah. and, and, and get it clear his mind before um, he gets into family life. Is that how, – how do you – I think my question is those, those thoughts, they don't leave what you've seen. They don't leave. Whereas, you know, pushing aside a legal thing or pushing aside a – a lost job, that, 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 I mean, that's, that's minor compared mm. to what you've seen and what you're going through. How do you prepare when you do go home at night? Um, well, the, the sorts of stuff we're talking about that police officers deal with every day is not really part of my day anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I get briefings on a lot of stuff and I'm still exposed to um, some pretty 
uh, graphic material mm. that relates to child sexual abuse or um, you know, murders, uh, other other crimes that my people are investigating. But uh, and from a personal point of view, I I, I seem to have that ability to um, compartmentalise things. Mm. From a yeah, you know, the, the complexities around my job though, and some of the you know the, the budget challenges or the strategic issues we're dealing with, or you know, issues that in potentially impact on the reputation of the organisation, they come home with me. Mm. And one of my problems is I live about seven kilometres from home, and quite often if I get a good run in traffic, I get home before I've really compartmentalised yeah. that stuff, and I'll yeah. walk through the back door and I'll get told to walk out and come back in again <laughs> because I've I've brought that crap home with yeah. me. So yeah. yeah, well, it's great that your wife has the, oh, and your family have the uh, the, the self awareness or the the awareness to know that. You're... I'm not sure if it's awareness or yeah. intolerance. <laughs> That's probably the latter. Healthy intolerance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, right. yeah she turn around, go out, <laughs> come in again, and see how you yeah, go. Let's restart. So, yeah. And I, know, and I know you're not exposed to it, right? But you hear about the stories that happen especially within the walls of South Australia, the boundaries of South Australia mm. and Adelaide particularly is what I'm talking about now. And and you let your kids walk around outside knowing that there are some of these type of people out in the world. Is that – how do you manage that situation? Um, look, uh, and I'm not just saying this because it, it serves my interest as the Commissioner of Police to say it, but South Australia is one of the safest places in the world. Yeah. Uh, and this is part of the problem of social media. Yeah, there are positives and negatives to social media, but one of the negatives is that you have this, uh, ex- I think, an excessive exposure to the, the bad things that happen and, and the crime, uh, the assaults, the sexual assaults, the you know, abductions, all, all of these things that are happening globally are delivered to your device and you're looking at it almost every day. Um, it used to be your perception of... Um, crime or, or safety was based on what was on the 6 o'clock news mm. or in the advertiser. Uh, we are far more exposed now, yeah. which alters our sense of safety and our perception about the safety of our children. Um, that's not to say you should be reckless with what you let your children do, but uh, you know, we're in a very safe place and you know, we don't want to be sort of creating a, a generation of children who haven't had the opportunity to make mistakes and, and, and sort of experience life because we're overly protective it's it's about balance and we're in a great place to be able to let our children take some of those risks i remember growing up i i lived at grange here in south australia i live in henley now so i'm stayed local one of those typical south australians Mm. has only moved to stone's throw away and we had a through grange there's a there's a beautiful creek that runs runs and i remember going out as a kid, probably 10, 11 years old, getting on the bike. I had a, my, my, my good mate across the road, um, Matt his name was, and we get, used to get on the bike and, and just and ride down this creek. And our aim was to get lost. Like mm. that was it. Yeah. Let's, like, let, let's just disassociate, disassociate ourselves with the, the complete reality of where we are and try to figure out how to get home from mm. there and see if we're good enough. Our mental compass can get us home. I would never let my children do that. No. And there's, yeah, but, but your children are more connected to you than you ever were with your parents when you're, when you're out and about. Like, yeah. Um, I remember as a you – know, I was still in primary school um, living in uh, Kensington near the parade. Um, 
and Portrush Road, riding my bike with a mate to the Gums, which was up off of I think it's off Glenburn Road. Yeah. You know, that's, I don't think I would have let my kids do that. No. But even if I did, they've probably got a mobile phone in their back pocket yeah. that if they get into strife, they can ring me or yeah. me or the police. Yeah. So yeah. it's about yeah. I do think you need to find that that sweet spot where the kids can go out and have those sorts of experiences. Um, do you think it's warranted though? Like my, I, I would go out at nine in the morning and not come home till dark. Like we were just yeah. out all day, yeah. Yeah. and we'd you know taking a couple of dollars with us and scrap some lunch on the way through, and then at night time we'd you know come home and we'd know five thirty dinner was going to be on the table, yeah. sort of thing. And yep. that the uh, what's really I don't I maybe we should ask my parents this, but the fact of that the child they don't know where the child is all day and yeah. not having a worry about it, like if yeah, I've got a. My daughters have a watch now. It's called the Space Talk Watch. Mm. It's a great company here in South Australia that have developed um, a watch where it's got like the – it's a phone where you can call and it's got the GPS tracker in it so you yeah. can see at, at when it – but even with that watch on, I still wouldn't let them <laughs> go out. Do you think it's warranted my way of thinking or uh, – I think, I think you need to take um, – you need to take steps to ensure your children are safe mm. but you can't – you can't be looking over their shoulder all the time. Like my youngest son uh, got into mountain biking mm-hmm. and as a uh, probably year seven, year eight, year nine, he was um, you know, catching the train up to the top of Belair with his mates and, you know, they'd disappear in the morning and come back in, in the afternoon. Yeah. You know, he had a mobile phone so I, yeah. you know, I knew I could get in touch with him. But, um, yeah, it's about... Yeah, you just maintain some perspective and remember that you're exposed to far more information now that influences and colours your thinking mm. that probably uh, doesn't necessarily sit with reality. Doesn't equate to reality. Um, you, you, we're all pretty safe in South yeah. Australia, but that doesn't mean bad things won't happen. Correct. So, and I think I'm not. I don't want you to say, "Yeah, send your kids out." Right? Like that's not the. the, the I think. I mean, but you mentioned South Australia is the safest place. As a parent, can I feel comfortable if we do tick all the right boxes that my kids can go out? Well, it's it's another dimension to this is the the child you're talking about. You know, well, that's true. Yeah, how yeah. how how confident they are. You know, how resilient they are. Yeah. Um, the the friendship group they're hanging around with. Um, your understanding of exactly what they're going to do when they're out and about. This is a decision parents have to make for themselves. But yeah. you know, fear of being kidnapped. That's that's. That's an extreme, you know. Mm. It, it, you, you need to find some perspective. I so think. it's not often that you hear cases like that. I mean, not that you can talk to it, but it, is it? It's not like it's happening every single day. No, of course yeah, not. And yeah. you know, you, you talk about what happened thirty years ago, yeah. forty years ago. Um, you, you think about some of the most horrific offending that's been committed against children happened in organisations that were established to provide services to children, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, the framework we have in place now that strictly vets people who are involved in providing services uh, and activities for kids, you know, should give us a level of comfort. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if your children should be able to go down the street on their bikes and does it make any difference if they're 100 metres or 400 metres or 500 metres? Um, proper parental control needs to find that balance. Mm. And it's a, it's an individual decision for each each yeah. family as to what what think, the children can do. I think you're right in, in regards to the kids. You should be more worried about a car hitting your kid than absolutely, than yeah. Else. yeah. 
digressed a little bit. Let's move back to the the, the, the career of, of Grant. And you did lead the human resources team at one point. Yes, you? yes, I did. I um I got called into the commissioner's office. There was a rotation of assistant commissioners and I was thoroughly enjoying the, the portfolio I had. And he called me in and told me that he was moving me to HR. And I thanked I thank I thanked him for it. Yeah. <laughs> Went home and had a little cry. <laughs> I uh, work in the world of HR. Yeah, so. well, I, it, it's it's my own fault because uh, my my uh, uh, tertiary studies were in human resource development. Yeah, okay. So, so you had an interest in it. Uh, I think I fell into that in terms of my okay. um, uh, tertiary studies. I, I did management with HR uh, development, okay. and was um, that something that you chose or something that you were told to do. No, no, I chose that. Yeah, okay. I chose that. It's just um, never really thought it. Sort of boxed me into a corner, but uh, I wasn't I wasn't thrilled about going to HR. But um, over the over the time I was there, I, I really I really got into it and enjoyed it, mm. and saw a side of the business that I really hadn't been deeply involved in, other than you know a, a user of the HR services mm. as a you know, a manager. Um, and you know, on reflection, I, I can say with a lot of confidence that 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 opportunity. I didn't see it as an opportunity at the time, but that opportunity was probably quite pivotal in me becoming the deputy commissioner and then ultimately the commissioner of police. Mm. Yeah, understanding a, a deeper understanding of all aspects of the business. Um, so, it's the human part, isn't it? HR, human resources. Yeah, but there's a lot of administration. There yeah. is. Yeah, that, and that's the side that sort of um, would be the detractor, I suppose, to yeah. anyone thinking about where they might want to be. But it, it helps you see the forest in the trees. Yeah, it? absolutely. And it, it's yeah, our our, our what our, our budget in Saipol is over a billion dollars. I think it's about one point three billion. Uh, I reckon about 82 percent of that is salaries. Yeah. So you know the core of our business is people. Yeah. So managing our people and looking after our people that is you know that's priority number one. And I think it would have given you a really good indication of the culture of police at the time? I think you have a pretty good indication of the culture as a result of your exposure to different aspects of policing and just being a part of the organisation. The the time in HR, and I'm not making it sound like it was a, a long time, it was about 12 months, yep. but you understand the, how the culture has to be managed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you sort of understand that as a manager anyway, but when you're in that human resource environment, you're thrust into it. And it's yeah. part of your portfolio yeah. responsibility. Now, I have to say this culture is not the responsibility of HR, right? It's the responsibility of the organization and the leaders that fall within mm. the organization and everyone that plays a part. Absolutely. So let's let's actually clarify that it's not a role of HR. No, but we've just changed just a few months ago. We changed uh, the title of human resources service to people, culture, and well-being. Great. So you have to have uh, one of your executive team need to have portfolio responsibility for culture. It's not their job to manage culture. Yeah. But you know, there's a whole heap of material that needs to sit formally. Defining the culture, the ethics, the values of the organisation, and that's that's got to be monitored, oversight, and that that's where the the culture piece comes in. Yep. The culture is the responsibility of every single person in the organisation, mm-hmm. um, and without everyone committed to a positive culture, then you start to see bad things emerging. I love it. Music to my ears. We'll cut that up and use that as a <laughs> as like a promo. The um, 
because we work a lot in culture. Uh, Synergy IQ, we're, we're an organisation that manages complex change and mm. you can imagine culture. Uh, Absolutely. Really falls in, in part of that. The workforce, workforce mm. planning is really, and we'll get into that with, with the policing uh, world uh, shortly. You have a civilian in the head of people and culture role yes. now. Is that, um, is that deliberate? Yes, it is. We, um, we've had civilians in the past um, and I think it, it was a period of about um, almost 20 years where we've had assistant commissioners as the head of mm-hmm. human resources and we have civilian HR professionals within the structure. Um, we took the view uh, just a couple of years ago that, um, you know, we have a, a director of uh, IT and communications who is a professional from that field. Our director of business is a civilian who... Um, manages our finances, fleet, facilities, why wouldn't we apply the same principle to human resources and recruit an HR professional to lead that part of our business? Mm-hmm. And we that's what we've done. So it, it's working really well. We've got uh, senior police that support our director. Um, but it's just, it's to me, it's a common sense decision. Yeah. You know, people invest heavily to develop their skill set in a, in a professional field and uh, – yeah, we, we've had reasonably good success with assistant commissioners running that area, mm-hmm. but it's a massive learning curve for a, a generalist police officer who's moved into the executive to Correct. step into that HR role and get up to speed. Because if I'm if I'm doing the right thing by my assistant commissioners, I'm going to give them a diversity of roles over the course of their executive career, so that they, if they choose to compete for the commissioner's position or the deputies, they've got a broad skill set. Whereas if – so they will expect to be moved, um, which means you've got this lead-in time where they're learning their craft yeah. and just as they're probably getting to understand yeah. the environment, yeah. they're probably time to move on. Whereas um, our people, culture and wellbeing director, um, she's she's in that role yeah. and that's her skill set. She comes – she virtually hits the ground running yeah. um, and we get a lot of benefit from that. She's brilliant. She was instrumental in organising this chat between us too. And she must be brilliant. Well, shout out to Kim Cherie. No, Kim's, Kim's doing a great job. And, um, yeah, it, was, it was a big move for us to move from an assistant commissioner to a director. I didn't think it was a, a, a big step. I thought it was a sensible step. And Kim's really stepped into the role and embraced it. And she's got some serious challenges in terms of where policing sits at the moment from a recruiting, training, development. Um, and, she's, and also that welfare piece as well, yeah. well-being. Um, but that's that's the benefit of having someone who comes from that environment. They've they come with a whole toolkit ready to yeah, go. Absolutely. Do you believe your role as commissioner of police, your main role, is to build a high performing culture? Um, I wouldn't say it's the main role, and, and I say that because I I would find it difficult to split. Mm-hmm. Off the various obligations I have, and pick one over the others, mm-hmm. but it is it is up there. Like in, in terms of priorities, uh, strong and positive culture is a critical priority for this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's fundamental to what we do. Is it where you want it to be? Uh, I mean, I'm really proud of the culture of the South Australia Police. I think we are successful in delivering a policing service to South Australia. I think we are instrumental in South Australia thriving because we provide a safe community. 
And I think we have an exceptional team of people, albeit over 6,000 people, who demonstrate all the positive aspects of our culture. Having said that, I don't think you can afford to rest on your laurels and think that without constant monitoring and maintenance that your culture is going to stay as a positive one. Uh, you have to be directing it and guiding it and there are occasions when you have to intervene heavily when you identify aspects of your culture that are negative or counterproductive. Mm. We had a situation um, where we became aware of aspects of our culture that needed to, to change and that was around sexual harassment and discrimination and we've been working quite aggressively since about 2016 to ensure that that aspect of our culture is where we want it to be. Mm. I mean, it's going to play a really big part in attracting the right talent. Absolutely. We um, yeah, Historically, policing has been seen as a male-dominated industry, profession, mm -hmm. and we've been working to encourage women to join policing as a, as a, as a career. Well, I think you used the example when we spoke last that if you close your eyes and think about yeah. a South Australian police officer, what do you see? And I, and I mean, you you see a, a white male, don't you? Yes, you do. That's that's the that's the reality. Is and th this is not unique to policing. If mm. you think about a nurse, you probably think of a a woman, a teacher. You probably think of a woman. Yeah. Um, fire fire officer. You think of a male. Yeah police officer, you, your mind's eye or mental picture is a male and we need to change that. But it doesn't change overnight. And part of that is making sure uh, we are an organisation that will attract women and ethnic minorities in order to make sure we are that organisation. You need to look at your culture to make sure your culture reflects those expectations that people will have coming in. You got to set these people up for success, right? And they, Absolutely. And they yeah. want they want to join a, a place where they're welcome, they're accepted, and have to put up with the bullshit of sexual harassment. Well, they need to. You need to come to work knowing that you're going to be safe, respected, and valued. Absolutely. And you know, three basic principles that everyone should expect. Mm. Um, and that's where we needed to do some work to make sure that when we start to recruit women, we're going to be able to retain them because the organisation includes them. Yep. So. In, in saying that, there's a there's a question here of you're trying to attract female. Is it a 50-50 split that you're after or how is um, it? Yeah, it look? I, in 2016 we started a program uh, or an initiative where all of our recruit courses have to be 50-50 gender split. Mm -hmm. um, and we've, there's been some hard yards in terms of acceptance of that policy within – South Australia Police and also within the community, a perception that good men are missing out on jobs in policing. It's not true, but that was a perception that we had to deal with. And also a perception that we must be lowering our standards if we're getting more women in, which is also a fallacy. Um, anyone who gets into the police academy has met our standards and are the right people to be there. It is, a, is, it a, it is the fact, though, that if uh, you, you may be suitable as a male applicant... Um, but because of our endeavour to make it 50-50, you might have to wait till the next course starts. Okay. So no one misses out. If, if they're good enough to be a South Australian police officer, we want them, we actually need them. Mm -hmm. um, and the first priority is to make sure we have enough police fulfilling their obligations in South Australia. The second and equally as important 
is that it's a 50-50 gender split. One thing that's going through my mind and is the is the conversation we had before about the sense of overwhelm and getting thrusted into a world where you're feeling uncomfortable. Now I can walk down the street and see a group of young guys standing on the side of the road dressed in what I wouldn't call suit attire and and feel threatened. Mm. And I'm a big six foot two, 100 plus kilo guy and I feel threatened. From a female perspective, is that something that's holding them back and holding your numbers back? Um, that's probably a question for um, some of the women we have working in policing and I have to say from my observation is they – they accept that uh, that challenge and that responsibility just as well as men do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and I think it's um, this is where communication becomes essential in terms yeah. of your ability to perform well as a police officer. Is communication will contribute or will assist in avoiding confrontation. Yeah, which um, is probably a, a skill set that females are better at. Yeah, it's communication. Yeah, I, I think we can acknowledge that. Yeah. that you put a, a a male into a hostile situation then communication probably is going to um break down well it'll break down more quickly because of the just that the nature of who men are whereas women are more likely to pursue that 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 communication approach um more successfully so while we're on the topic of attracting talent gen z's millennials (laughs) it's a different world out there absolutely (laughs) yeah what are are some of the things that you're seeing well We're um, from a recruiting point of view. We're starting to think about how we position ourselves as an organisation that will be, a, you know, a, an attractive proposition to these younger generations. Yeah. Um, we're getting past the point where w- w- there are some challenges inherently in the fact that that w- whether or not policing can provide what people are expecting from a professional career now. Um, you know. People who have grown up on devices coming into a learning environment where the first thing we give them is a big thick book to read, mm. you know, full of all of the, the processes yeah. that they have to get through, um, that we're using technology that might not be cutting edge. Yeah. Um, you just got to open a YouTube account and get them yeah, on there and you'll yeah. get them watching. <laughs> and uh, then we got the, uh, the the challenge of the level of flexibility that people expect from mm. their, their employment. Yeah, we are. You know, we're still sort of paramilitary. Yeah, you know, we wear uniforms. We have hierarchies. Uh, we expect our people to do what they're told when they're told because that's how we manage critical incidents and emergency situations, and it's how we do it safely. Mm. Uh, we have shift working rosters that need to be filled. Um, yeah, you know, we we don't have the opportunity to provide that level of flexibility that a lot of younger generations expect from work now. Mm. So we need to be thinking about how we reconfigure policing to accommodate those requirements of the people that we're attracting but also maintain that level of service that the community requires of us. Big challenges. Yeah, it would be because there's there's a shift in thinking now, isn't there? There's so many different ways that you can earn some cash, right? Whether you're you're making YouTube or you're an influencer or like these things didn't happen when you were growing up. And I think one of the things that sort of struck out for me or uh, stuck struck out stuck out for me as a, as a civilian thinking about the police force 
you don't call it police force, do you? Police service. Police service, yeah. Mm. Just thought about that. As a, right. yeah, the police service. The idea of who you would likely attract, like the the cohort of who you would likely attract would, would be quite smaller, right? So if you think, and, I, and I'm going to use the example of America because it's like 300 mm. million people and there's so many different levels of society that fall yeah. within it. If you're in a, from a low socioeconomic society, uh, you can go to the army and you can learn discipline and all the above. And in your in your community doesn't have a a thought process of the army in the way that that community might think about police. Right? Mm. There's a different there's a different viewpoint. Do you find the same struggles here? Um, I probably haven't turned my mind to that dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really focused on the challenges we have in recruiting people into. Uh, policing now. Um, this is not about um, emerging generations or new generations entering the workforce. This is about you know our current uh, pool of potential applicants. That every jurisdiction in Australia is struggling to recruit police. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a huge amount of work to try and get figure out what the causes of that are. Yeah, um, you know, COVID plays a part in that. I think yeah. uh, people's perceptions of what police do has probably shifted as a result of what they've seen police officers doing as part of the the nation's COVID response. Mm. Not every police service did it the same way and we saw some pretty ugly pictures coming out of other states in terms of how police were dealing with people who were, you know, not following the COVID rules. That's probably had an impact nationally on how people see policing. Um, And we're also at a point at the moment where we have almost full employment, so there's a lot of choice out there for people Mm -hmm. and... You know, if I'm brutally honest, uh, we don't have the most streamlined recruiting processes, so people probably get frustrated while they're waiting to hear back from us. Yep. So we're we're doing as much as we can internally to speed those processes up. Lack of people, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, we can do more with more people, yeah, but correct. we need the people to come to us so correct. we have more. So, yeah, yeah is, it, is it recruitment from uh, front line or is it recruitment from office staff? Is it all the above? It's everything. everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, yeah. If you if we have more police, we we need more administration staff yeah. to support those police yeah. so but right. we you know we, we are we have quite um and this is this comes back to kim our people cultural well-being yeah. director really turning our uh, recruiting and selection processes on their head to make them as engaging as possible so one when someone shows interest we basically once we get our hooks in yeah we don't let them go because you know not everyone who applies ends up getting through so we need to make sure we we attract the right people and then push them through as quickly as possible and get them into the environment so they start to become a part of who we are. We have a formula here at Synergy IQ where it's um, EX equals CX, right, which is employee employee experience equals customer experience. And and I believe that on a a note of um, from a recruitment point of view, the same thing can be said if your employees are experiencing great things. They're telling people about you mm. know, come to work, come to work, yeah. come, come work with Saypol. What is really interesting to me is if police as a service, police as an organisation can't recruit the amount of people that we need to manage as the population is growing, what happens? Well... I think I've got a solution for that yeah. and part of that lies in the fact that we have a traditional mindset about 
police numbers mm-hmm. and you know, when we talk about increasing the size of the police service from a government perspective, historically it's been about more police, more, more police in uniform and mm-hmm. they'll make a commitment to funding additional police. We need to step out of that uh, and policing is becoming more complex. So we recruit people as general duties police officers and over the course of their career they find themselves moving into different specialised fields. Some of those fields take a lot of time to develop the expertise and we have the potential to bring people in laterally who already have those skills and I think cybercrime is a really good example yeah. of that. Uh, yeah, your general duties police officer might have an interest in that but for us to get them up to a level where they have the, the skills and qualifications to be effective in a cyber environment might take years, mm. whereas we can attract someone who's done tertiary studies in that, maybe even practice in the field, yeah. to come in laterally and start operating immediately. So it's about diversifying our workforce, yep. having the right people doing the right things. And there are some things that must be done by a police officer, but there's a, a range of other duties that we have police officers doing that we could re reconfigure to bring people in laterally who don't necessarily have to have gone through the academy you know, learn how to drive police cars, yeah, correct. use firearms, tactical options. Well, this is workforce planning and, and thinking about Absolutely. strategically. I yeah. think we work with a lot of companies and if you think engineering, I'll use an example of an engineering company that we have worked with is that the, the, the engineers are hard to come by and in the mm. defence world they're um, they're almost inbred in a way where one they go from one company to another company mm. to another company and back and whoever's paying the most. And, yeah. and so we have to think about... Uh, and through COVID times, we haven't been able to recruit externally or from internationally as well. So there's the lack of people coming in from overseas. So we think about if we've got three engineers all with sort of 30% administration in their role, and so how do we take the administration off them yeah. and give that to an administration officer and then mm. that gives them full capacity and all, all of a sudden we might get more engineering productivity. It's just about thinking th- about things slightly yeah. differently. We've, um, yeah, historically in South Australia, police officers have done the prosecuting for matters in the magistrate's yeah. court and we've had a team of police prosecutors made up of police officers who have done the training and development to move into that courtroom environment. And we were finding it more and more challenging to find police officers who wanted to move into that space mm-hmm. because the magistrate's court has become more complex in the matters it's dealing with. We took the step of recruiting and employing civilian solicitors who are now police solicitors and they make up about 30% of our prosecutor workforce now. So they're appearing in court prosecuting matters for police Brilliant. instead of police officers, which means we can push more police onto right. the front line. And that's, right. it's, it's a great model. It's working really well for us and yeah. over time – we would expect that we'll see more police solicitors than police officers right. in that environment yeah. and, and it works. People are doing what they love, right? They're doing and we, we, we've got to get past this mindset that we've had historically in police that you join police as a, as a young person <clears throat> and that's it. You know, this is your career now. We will have you until you retire. Yeah. We need to move past that. that uh, even with police officers, we should expect that this might not be their, their final uh, employer, yep. you know, they might diversify and do something differently. They may come back to us, they may not. Mm-hmm. The same with our civilians that we recruit, yep. whether it be cybercrime, uh, prosecutors, whatever, well, what other, whatever other field we can find, we might not have them forever. Correct. But they'll leave. I'm hoping they'll leave us with more experience 
for their own personal development and have left us in better shape than what they, they arrived. Brilliant. I love it. Level 5 Leadership. Have you heard of that? It's a good, good, good to great book by Jim Collins. No. It's a Level 5 Leadership. We, where a Level 5 leader is thinking about how they can grow the people within their team to go off and create careers for themselves mm. elsewhere other than where they are. It's not about how do we keep in control. It's about how do we grow and train so that they can have an impact yeah. on the world in other ways. So it's really great to hear that you guys are doing that. Is it a good job? Is it a, like policing? Is it a good oh, job? Oh, I can't say I've loved every minute of my career <laughs> but I don't have a lot of bad days that sort of drag me down. Yeah. Um, I've. I've really enjoyed if if everybody has a career like I've had in terms of enjoyment then I think we're pretty lucky like I've I've loved every minute of it and you know I talk to police officers all the time notwithstanding some of the challenges that they face um some of the hardships um some of the frustrations a lot of the demands they still love coming to work yeah. so it is a good job it, it, it's a good organization uh, I'm really proud of our reputation within the South Australian community and our reputation comes from the way our people do our job. Mm. You know, the organisation itself, I, I don't think, has a reputation of integrity. Um, the people who work for us have integrity and the way they do their job positively impacts on our reputation and that's what we enjoy as an organisation. Right. Goes with any organisation. Yeah, right. that's right. It, it's about your people and it's how they one, do their job. 100% about your people. Talking about um, loving your job, you you rose to a bit of fame over the past couple of years, going through um, going through the what is the COVID years now. Mm. As we look back, to be very honest with you, I didn't know who any other commissioner was in South Australia before you. Like, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't something that was front of mind, and all of a sudden, Grant Stevens is on the TV every single day. Yeah, you. You have uh, you have received some upshift in in of level of interest in in you and, and since being and how have you taken the that on board and you know you because you have this humble approach of I'm just regular old bike riding Grant Stevens mm. I, I don't I don't know about this this fame and fortune not fortune but the fame that I'm sort of receiving at the moment uh, I suppose the um, yeah <laughs> fortune doesn't yeah, is that fortune um, <laughs> yeah. The, the role of commissioner comes with some profile. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of expectations about no doubt being available for media and and, and talking about current issues. Um, but yeah, but that sort of uh, once we hit COVID, that was on steroids. It was just yeah. it was every day, it was. Um, and it, it's not just that it was there every day, but. Um, people's intense interest in what we were talking about, you know, draw, drew so many people into watching these broadcasts or mm. seeing it on, you know, social media feeds. Yeah. Um, it was it was quite, quite different. And the consequence of that was um, wherever I would go, you know, I'd be confronted in, in, in the community, whether I'm at the supermarket in a pair of jeans and yeah. a T-shirt or, you know, in any sort of formal capacity, but invariably, people were really nice. You know, yeah. you know they were coming up and thanking me and Sapol for what we were doing in, around COVID. And yeah, the vast majority of people were really, really good. Mm. So, um, it took a little bit to reconcile that that 
you know, being recognised so obviously was different. Mm. I have a little bit of um, – <laughs> I don't know if you call it post-traumatic stress. We're seeing you, Nicholas Spuria and Stephen Marshall on the TV every day for however – how long? Mm. It was 16. Like you guys were on TV every day consistently. Mm. Through 2020 it was pretty intense and it, parts of 2021. Yeah. And I remember thinking if – it got to the point where they started swapping people in and out who was doing the press interviews. But if mm. you three were on TV, something serious was about to be said. How yeah. did how did you manage that relationship with the, the the two? It seemed like from a public point of view, things were a little bit argy bargy here and there, and there was uh, a bit of differencing of opinions. And no, no, it's uh, well for context as the state coordinator. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the decision maker mm-hmm. in terms of what rules we put in place or what we removed uh, in terms of restrictions. Um, I was supported by the Premier yep. who uh, did an excellent job in enabling me to do my job and I was advised by Nicola Spurrier mm-hmm. and Nicola's responsibility was to um, provide the best advice as it related to managing COVID-19 in the community and my obligation was to take a broader view in terms of uh, the impact of the restrictions we were putting in place, the likelihood of people complying with those restrictions and how we'd manage non-compliance mm. uh, and making sure that you know, there, were, there weren't any unintended consequences that we should have foreseen. Mm. So uh, by and large, it was uh, an excellent working relationship um, uh, I've got nothing but respect for Nicola and, and Premier Stephen, former Premier Stephen Marshall, who, by the way, um, on, on being succeeded by Peter Malinowskis, he's been exactly the same in terms of his support Great. of me as the state coordinator. Um, it, but there were always occasions when we were going to be debating the merits of a decision mm-hmm. and it was done respectfully. Uh, we didn't always agree but uh, those discussions and deliberations position me to be able to make some of those difficult mm. decisions. So, Do you always win? Is that, is no, that no, no, no. It was, it was not about winning. <laughs> no, I'm, yeah. so, I'm stirring. I'm throwing no, no, it in. No. <laughs> um, I can't imagine it having been done any better had yeah. you shifted people in or out. Yeah. You know, whichever person it was. I was, I felt as, as difficult as some of the decisions were and, you know, appreciating the consequences of those decisions, um, I felt well supported in terms of the advice from Nicola and other people in SA Health and uh, the support from the Premier. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we did was very unpalatable and, you know, notwithstanding the, the challenges that we were creating, I was still supported. I, let me tell you, I was sitting there at home or wherever I was watching you guys on TV thinking I wouldn't want to be in their position right now. Uh, I absolutely empathise with it is unprecedented. It's something that we've never done before or mm. never gone through before. You're making things up with the information that you have at hand, right? Yeah. That's all you can do. So, you know, kudos to the role and mm. to what you guys did. But you talked before about unforeseen consequences and, and the idea of lockdowns and having been worked in, in sex crimes and all, mm. you know, child uh, abuse and all that sort of stuff, did was that an unforeseen? I think one thing we often heard was that, you know, um, the, the domestic abuse was on the rise as a result and all the above. Is, is that 
can you squash that fact or no, was it actually No, actually uh, well, what I can say is um, in South Australia, I think we had a total of about seven days of lockdown. Yeah. In contrast to almost every other state or territory in Australia mm-hmm. uh, where they had weeks or months. Um, Victoria is obviously the outlier. Yeah. It was just massive. Unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, that, that notion that um, people were more likely to be the victim of domestic violence or sexual abuse in a home environment because people were confined together, I don't think sits in South Australia. I don't mm-hmm. think that, that could be applied. But we did have the situation where people were being forced to or opting to work from home, which meant we did have situations where people didn't have the same level of freedom to get out of the home environment. Um, so there's a potential that that might have resulted in um, people being subject to behaviours that they might not ordinarily have have had yeah. to tolerate. Um, so how but, do you decide what's more important at that point? Well, there's um, – and that, that's the challenge. Yeah. Now, no one was ever prevented from getting out of their home. Mm-hmm. Um, they were never prevented from calling police. Yeah, correct. So these are the things you think, well, you know, we can mitigate that. Yeah, to some it's extent. not like we're saying you have to stay there and even if you're in danger, you stay, stay put. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And one of, the, one of the key things we said when we shut our borders and people couldn't come into South Australia, one of the exemptions was if you're escaping domestic violence, you can come in. You can come in. Yeah. So we thought about those things but you can't you – can't, eliminate risk and I'm sure there are people who experienced incidents of domestic abuse as a result of the fact that the COVID circumstances put them with the person committing those offences more frequently or for extended periods of time. Uh, But we didn't see significant changes in the reports of domestic abuse. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. People might not have reported it but it, it's, a, it's a really good example of trying to find that balance between addressing COVID but having an assessment or an understanding of what the possible consequences were and, you know, shutting down hospitality, uh, <clears throat> knowing that <clears throat> a lot of them are small businesses and, you know, business owners are basically being told you can't run your business, we are cutting off your livelihood, you can't pay your mortgage, you can't, yeah. you can't retain your staff, um, you think about the impact on individuals from that point of view or, or hospitality workers who uh, they're in a casual environment, work environment, no longer you – know, they don't have an income yeah. for food. The, the federal government did a great thing in, in supporting that but imagine the stress from that. I, I So that was going to be the follow-up question. Domestic violence is one thing. Was suicide something else that was on your mind? Uh, well, less more broadly mental health. Yeah, mental know. health. Suicide yeah. is one part of, That's uh, of mental – it's an extreme – but there are a lot of people who are probably feeling the adverse effects of decisions that were forced upon them from COVID-19 mm-hmm. and it may take years for them to recover What's from What's a that. bigger pandemic looking back in hindsight, mental health pandemic that, it, that this COVID's caused or the actual? Uh, I think much smarter people than me will do the analysis of yeah. the decisions that were made for COVID, how it impacted on the management of COVID and what the consequential impacts of those, those decisions were on a range of other factors. Um, yeah. And it's work that should be done. I think yeah. there needs to be a, a clear appreciation of um, how we manage COVID and how it impacted on people more broadly. Yeah. In case it ever happens again, you're right, we have to look at these statistics yeah. and going, well, you know, we're actually very lucky here in Australia, especially South Australia, mm. like from a, a loss of life point of view, we're very, very lucky compared to some of the other yeah. 
other countries. How early in the piece? Uh, uh, sorry, and one thing on that too is, is it's not it's not one or the other. Yeah, you, know, you, you couldn't ignore COVID because no. that would have had a devastating impact on well, our community as correct. well. Correct, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's never black and white. No. Isn't it? It's just like the switch button. <laughs> it's yeah. never black and white. Never turn off and on. How early in your, well, how early in the COVID point did you? I know I'm using this question because I think it's a point where, you know, you as commissioner, you need to keep some stuff to yourself, right? Mm. You can't, you know, you, you have confidentialities that you need to yep. hold on to. How early in the piece did you go home and tell your wife that, oh, hang on, this COVID thing's actually coming and we're in a bit of trouble? Uh, there, there wasn't a single point in time. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I was spent a lot of time on the phone at home, yeah. so... She would have heard. And there were no surprises. Mm. Um, but it was uh, probably the, the, the turning point in terms of the impact on us as a family and me as as commissioner and state coordinator was back in March. Um, I'd gone to the police ball in Panola. I was invited to attend this ball um, as a charity fundraising yep. event. Yep. So my wife and I went and we were driving back and I spent most of the time on the trip back, on the phone, talking to um, people from the Department of Primary and Cabinet and the Chief Executive of SA Health about needing to start taking some very deliberate steps to manage COVID-19. Um, and so that was, I think that was a Sunday we were driving back. Over the course of the next week, it became pretty constant. Mm. And the very next Sunday is when I declared the major emergency and that's mm. when that's when things really kicked off and it became you know, 16, 18 hours a day, seven mm. days a week. What were you hearing in that time and can you share it? What, what were you hearing about COVID at that uh, time? Well, this was at a point where we really, we really didn't know what the impact of the virus was going to be. Mm. Um, there was no, no likelihood at that early stage of a vaccine. Mm. So the whole plan was to um, – the, 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 the perception was that we're all going to get this thing. Yeah. If we all get it at once, then we're in a bit of trouble. We're in serious what, trouble. Is it because what we were seeing was happening in in Rome? Yeah, Rome, uh, New York. Yeah. Um, you know, people over the age of sixty being turned away from yeah, hospitals that's, because that's they they didn't have enough ventilators. So they were being right. sent home to die. Mm. Um, mass graves being dug in Central Park. You mm. know, th- these things happened, and people forget that. Mm. Um, but we were being briefed on, um, you know. Estimates in terms of the number of fatalities from COVID nineteen, the impact on our hospital system, mm. the the scarcity of our ICU resources and ventilators, uh, the the consequences of our hospital system being overwhelmed by a, a large number of people con- presenting all at once, needing medical assistance because of COVID, mm. the impact on other people who have other chronic illnesses not being able to access those services. Um, it was a fairly grim picture, and. That's why we acted so quickly to try and put steps in place to slow slow down the spread of the virus through our community. We never intended to stop it. Mm. We just wanted to slow it down so our system could manage during those yeah. intensive periods. Yeah. Was the, what was the slogan? like? Slow the spread. S- slow the spread or the curve? What was the curve? Yeah, we like? had a curve. Yeah. We, yeah so, spread so, the curve yeah. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a... How did you I think manage? I'm having PTSD now talking about. Uh, it's it. It's not good, is it? <laughs> uh, it? And I think that it is so true. I, I, I didn't when in our previous conversations, 
So let's not spend too much time on it. But I think it's such an interesting thing now. It, it is interesting. In and, hindsight. and, you know, in all likelihood, I don't think anyone else will ever do what I did no. as the state coordinator. No. And I, there will be a review of the Emergency Management Act, yeah. which was the is the act that gave me those powers. And I fully support a review. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a view that after a certain period of time, it shouldn't sit on one person's <laughs> shoulders to make those decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously I'll contribute to that review and share my views then. But, yeah. But um, I think it was a testament to you as a person. I think you were a calming influence on the um, on the TV. You really were. And and I'm speaking as a civilian looking mm. out and, and as a business owner, as a father, as a husband, uh, you know, as a, a, someone as part of the community. Whenever Grant Stevens spoke, and I'm not saying this just to blow smoke up your, your bum, but like it's more <laughs> of it's, it really is about – I remember you came on and it was like, guys, this is actually something that we're doing and we've made calculated decisions to the best of our ability. Mm. Like you just need to believe that. This yeah. is to the best of our ability. We're not – there's no conspiracy stuff going on here. It's about how do we make sure we keep as many people safe yeah. in such a broad context as possible. You could see that was coming through you. Don't know what to say to that. No, it's um, Put it, your hat on and tip your hat to it. So I, it was brilliant. I think – where you, what I am interested in is the leadership aspect of your role, and how did you prepare your organisation for this? Um, well, we we do a lot of um, a lot of exercise management, and you know, we we have the opportunity to practice our uh, emergency management response through a whole range of different scenarios, including bushfires. You know, we, we're well, well practiced in. Standing up the state emergency centre, pulling in key stakeholders, you know, giving tasks to people that can support us. Flooding events, severe weather events, yeah. statewide blackouts. Um, so you're you're pretty well versed, and but this it. this was different. It was. Yeah, and I don't think the difference really struck us until we were in the midst of it. Mm. That this, this is far more significant. Never before have we introduced statewide restrictions. You know, we might have shut down roads before, or yeah. you know set up an evacuation area for yeah. a particular township. But this is this this area. this was completely different and uh, I don't think we were prepared for what we were going to be required to do as a police service. But the general management practices we have in place and the discipline that we apply positioned us to be able to adapt to this emerging event that we hadn't had a lot of experience in. So uh, I'm once again I couldn't be more proud of the organisation um, and the people in it. Uh, and it's not just the people who got sent off to do COVID-related activities. It's the it's every work group in the organisation, regardless of their role, stood up and adapted their work practices so we could maintain the, the, the broader level of service to the community. It's it's um, yeah, something that uh, no matter what happens in the rest of my career and what happened before – uh, the way South Australia Police responded to COVID nineteen is something I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah. Made me, gave me the ability to do my job, and so you should be. You as a leader, did you put much emphasis on that? Were you thinking about? Like in, in, I know in, in the, as a, in the heart of the moment, you're not necessarily relying on the thought. You're mm. you're working on habit, and you're working on experience, and you're training. Yeah. But was there a conscious effort to say in that moment, I need to be the calming influence in this space? I actually need to play this part? Um, I'm not sure I'd 
describe it as a conscious thought, but it was clearly a part of my obligation was to um, not so much calm the community but deliver um, the messages in a way that could be clearly understood and people people had an appreciation of what we were dealing with and what was required of them and panic's never going to serve anyone. And I think you know, being able to operate in uh, complex or dynamic environments and maintain a level of calm assists everyone around you. Um, it helps people focus. Um, that sense of uh, obligation in terms of providing leadership was not just outward facing for the community. It was about everyone within SAPOL too, you know, and I put a lot of effort into speaking to as many of my staff as possible, visiting different work areas, um, visiting those locations that were involved in our COVID response, regular uh, videos to the workforce about what we're doing, why we're doing it, what we need them to do, mm. how we need them to do it, how was really important. And uh, I think we, we, we benefit, benefited from that approach. Must have been an immense amount of pressure. Yeah, well, on reflection, yes, yeah. but you know, in the thick of it, it's um, day by day. You just yeah. do it, you do. Yeah, it. you how, do. How important was the hug from your kids when you got home? Uh, my kids are of an age now where the hugs are few and far between. Yeah, but, <laughs> but even, but some. I think the question is more about who did you turn to just to go? Yeah. How do I be human again? I, I don't. I didn't really. I didn't have a problem with that. It was, okay. um, you know, I, the people I work with closely within SAPOL, a lot of them are friends and, yeah. you know, I was supported by very competent people who were just as committed as me and we were in this together. And you know, my wife and my kids who are at home, they're hugely supportive as well. Mm. Uh, it's just it's it's more organic mm. than, um, you know, a deliberate, deliberate thought about de-stressing or debriefing yeah. or yeah. getting that support. It just happened. Has your daughter forgiven you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> for for yeah. those for context, yeah. the, the, the lockdown was done the day before your daughter's wedding, right? It was it something like that? It was a, it? a change of numbers. Change, that's yeah, right. we, yeah we, we reduced the numbers yeah. that could gather. I think we brought it down to 30. Yeah. Uh, it was just – You just didn't want the extended relatives at the <laughs> – Well <laughs> – I, I did try and encourage her to just get married at home in the backyard. But uh, my, my daughter had a wedding scheduled for the 5th of December in 2020 and it was cancelled twice and the second occasion we cancelled it, uh, I actually hadn't told anyone that the numbers were coming down and I, I was doing a radio interview and I announced that uh, my daughter's wedding wasn't happening on the 5th of December and <laughs> – my future son-in-law heard that and rang my daughter and said, "Did you realise our wedding's been cancelled?" So, <laughs> oh, no. yeah, I, that was fine. I think yeah. they, they saw the writing on the wall. But as it turned out, um, the numbers came up before the fifth of December, and uh, the venue was still available, so the wedding happened just as planned. Oh wow! So there you go. yeah, a, f- a few disappointments, but it happened as we we would have hoped it to happen. Yeah, I didn't get to save any money. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's why you were doing it, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Was it? No. And my son had an 18th birthday in um, in 2020 as well. Okay. So it's uh, a bit happening in the family. Well, at that point you could only have 10 people at home and his mm. plan was for about 110 people. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was a bullet dodged. I didn't yeah. have 110 18-year-olds. Couldn't, couldn't christen himself on the 18th like 
a clubbing event, do you know what I mean? No, yeah, that's yeah, right. The, yeah. the night of the 18th birthday, you're going to a club. Not Nightclubs, I don't think we're operating yeah, at that point. Right. Either. So, yeah, but heart, would yeah. heartbreaking. It would have been really He's hard. He's forgiven me. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Well, it would have been, I, always think, I always always think about this year 11 and 12, like especially mm. the year 12 students going through that 2020 year. It would have been very tough. They, yeah. Looking back on that as a as a year of their the, what was supposed to be one of their best years of their yeah. schooling career. Yeah, and it's it would have been um, really tough. Yeah, the 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 formals that didn't happen. Yeah. Or, you know, just yeah. you had to choose between dancing or having alcohol. You yeah. couldn't have both. It's, yeah. Yeah, weird times. I yeah. um, my daughter was starting year one, was going into year one, and you know, typically every morning with my oldest daughter, you we would take her into the classroom mm. and talk to the teacher, and you'd build a, like a great little community with the families and the mums and the dads yeah. and all the above. And I think that was one thing that we really missed with my second daughter is we're not really as connected with her friendship group mm. and the parents as what we are with my oldest who we had the opportunity. So there's a lot of loss there as That's well. That's right. And some of those things are not immediately apparent. Yeah, you know, they, they sort of become – you become aware of them over time. Yeah. Um, so we'll be learning about the, compact, the impact of COVID yeah, for, for a long time yet. In hindsight, was everything done the way you would have done it? Like, would you would you change what you? Well, that's to? that's a question I've been asked uh, quite a few times coming out of the the yeah. tail end of COVID. Um, what would I've done differently? And if you take hindsight off the table, because it's really easy to come up with it a better way. The vision, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in in at the time of making those decisions, based on the advice we were getting, and the forecasting that we had available to us, I'm comfortable with every decision we made hindsight will show us that some of those decisions could have been different mm-hmm. but you, you deal with what you know at the time you're making those decisions and you know, a really good example of that is um uh pizza gate you know we, <laughs> we, we had a we had a we had a lockdown because of the information we were provided about how COVID was being transmitted through a, a, what you'd call an incidental contact at a pizza shop. Yeah. And it was the right decision. If, if that information was accurate and correct and we had no reason to disbelieve it at the yeah. time, we needed to act yeah. because there had been, there'd been a change in the behaviour of the virus that yeah. saw so many more people being affected. Yeah. We needed to slow things down. Hindsight tells us the circumstances were different. Were different. The lockdown wasn't required, but we didn't know that. At the, at the day of, on the day of making the decision, we didn't know. It was a seven-day lockdown. We found out after about two days, so it became a three-day lockdown. Mm. The amount of conspiracy <laughs> theories that got thrown yeah. around about that pizza shop was unbelievable. Yeah, so. it's unfortunate for the for yeah. the for the, the business. Yeah, correct. But you know, th- these are the circumstances, and mm. it, it, there are so many examples of difficult decisions made based on the information we had at our disposal. Yeah. Conscious of your time, I'm going to start wrapping up. Now, I just want to ask one question before we jump into what we have. Is some quick fire questions at the end of this podcast. What does the future look like for Grant Stevens? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, it's a question I'm interested to see the answer yeah. to. <laughs> um, I, I've never, I've never really had a deliberate plan to become the commissioner. I mm-hmm. think I've, I've, I've probably said that. Yep. I've never chased any particular rank in the organisation. I've I've loved what I've done and enjoyment 
probably contributes to doing something well. And when you do something well, opportunities um, evolve in front of you and you, you take that step and it leads to something else. So I don't feel like I'm finished as commissioner, but that's a matter for the, the Premier in terms of yeah. my contract arrangements. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm not looking too far ahead. And at some point in the relatively near future, my time as commissioner will come to an end. Mm. And I don't know what the next step is, but I'm interested to find out. And I don't have any anxiety about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see what happens. Might come as a welcome relief. Oh, look, uh, I really do enjoy my job yeah. uh, and, so and I'll, I'll miss aspects of it. Um, yeah. But I probably won't miss having to have my phone with me all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll put a partition. Every, I think I want to see you in there for 10 more years. Mate, so <laughs> I don't want anyone else yeah. in the role. I think the public will probably stand by me on that as well. Well. Like I said, it's a matter for the Premier but uh, uh, I've got to say I've been very well supported by um, both uh, Stephen Marshall and Peter Malinowskis yeah. and uh, that certainly makes it easy for me to do my job. I'm trying to get Peter on the show so we'll, yep. uh, when he if he does come on I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put in the good word for <laughs> <Thanks>. you. <laughs> There's some quick fire questions as we round up. We're big readers here at Creating Synergy. We read a lot of books, knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is a very core value of, of our business. Um, so reading is a big part of that or learning or development. What's, what's a book you're reading right now? Uh, David Baldacci, The Simple Truth. Oh, yes. Good. So far, so, so good. Far, yeah, yeah. Halfway the through. hook, the hook's in. Yeah, I'm yeah. about a quarter of the way through. Yeah, great. Yeah. If they get, if I get past the first thirty pages, I tend you, to finish. I'm yeah. a finisher. So oh, you are. Even yeah. if I don't enjoy it, I'll finish you, it. Yeah. Oh, really? You, you, you just have to work, grind through it. Yeah. I used to be that way. I yeah. read differently now. I actually yeah. read just put for knowledge. I think I'm one of the, the definitely the younger crew that comes through and go. I need short impact and short. Yeah. So I used to read the full book, but now it's like I only need that chapter. That's yeah. the part that I need. No. I suppose with fiction, you've got to follow the story. Well, is it, okay. Well, yeah. that's true too. Yeah, no, I'm talking purely nonfiction. Uh, what self development book that do you feel stands out? That crowd? Do you read any self development books, or have you put much effort into? Oh, that? I have in the past, yeah. um, but none none really stand out. Um, there's a really small book that oh, I was quite impressed with. Uh, Who moved my cheese? Yeah, yeah. Spencer Johnson. It, yeah, yeah it's just you know, very simple, yeah. but you know, impactful. And uh, there was uh, the. Seven Habits habits of Highly Effective People, and not the whole book. Um, I didn't get through the entire book but there was one part that talked about the circle of concern mm. and the circle of influence yeah. and that principle stuck with me in terms of, I suppose, managing stress mm-hmm. is don't waste energy on stuff you can't influence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it's good to be aware of those things but put your energies into the area – sorry – only, only focus on what you can influence, yeah. not, not what concerns you if you can't influence it. Well, it's, what's, if you've got no control over it, what are you worried about? Uh, you should be aware. Yeah, so it's, it's balanced it's there. Planning. Yeah, that, that, that one element of that book stuck with me. 100%. I love that book. Mm. Synergy is one of the seven habits, right? So that's why we kind <laughs> of use it. Uh, what's one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? Um, don't procrastinate. Yeah. So you're uh, a big procrastinator. Uh, I do some of my best work under pressure and you <laughs> yeah. can create that pressure by not not, not getting on with it. <laughs> yeah, don't put off till tomorrow what you can put off until the day after tomorrow. So, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it's, I, 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 I describe it as procrastination but I, I don't think it 
genuinely is procrastination. I'll, I'll look at something and, and I might put it to the side of my desk yeah. but I don't necessarily separate it from my thinking. No. So when you do come back to the file, you have a, a just that subconscious processing, I think, gives you more capacity to make the right call yeah. on those tough things. You generally know gut feel though. Yeah. Part, yeah. yeah you, you sit do. on it for a few days and then you go, I'm going to go with my gut anyway. Yeah. And I suppose <laughs> reflecting on my, my, my experience with high school and um, the way I've sort of been through my policing career is, and I said I wasn't a, a very well-applied student in high school, and if I was talking to people in high school now, and I said this to a group of students just the other day, don't cut short your opportunities for the future by taking the easy path right now. Mm. You know, make sure you find that right balance. You know, invest in this opportunity to develop yourself so you've got more opportunities or more choices once you get out of that schooling environment. I love that. That's, that's brilliant. If you could invite three people for dinner, who would they be? Now that's a tough question. Um, actually, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I've never really turned my mind to it. Um, well, it wouldn't be Nicola or Stephen Marshall because <laughs> no, I, I, I had a lot to do with them. I, 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 I was, was going to throw it in there. But no. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, maybe uh, <laughs> uh, Donald Trump. Oh wow! Only not not <laughs> not because I I'm, I subscribe to his political views or or condone any of his behaviours, but I just think it would be a a bizarre experience to see that up close. <laughs> it would be. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'd, he would be. It would be a strange conversation. There's just unraveling the thoughts that goes on in that person's head. Yeah, and I. I, I seriously don't subscribe no, to his no, thinking, I, but uh, I get, it's just—I get your point. It's, it's a freak show. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The other two. Um. Anyone you look up to? Yeah. Uh, I, I I can't answer that question. Yeah. I find that really hard to. Yeah. yeah on the, you're sort of off the cuff. Yeah. Um, I'd just be picking names and yeah, I don't know that that – Whether they've actually got any thoughts. I'll come back in a week and I'll let you know yeah, the other that'd two. Be amazing. And Donald I, Trump probably wouldn't make the final no, cut. No, I wouldn't have thought. Um, no. I think you're valid. I see a, you see enough of him through social media to offend you. I do I do understand what you say though. It is, like From a human behaviour point of view, I just want to understand what is going on in that person's brain. Yeah, yeah I think it speaks volumes about the shift in our society where someone like that Gets to a position of such significance. It, it doesn't with make, so many followers. It doesn't make sense. Does no, it? No. no. What's some of the best advice you've ever received? Uh, be honest. Mm. Be true to yourself. Um, and and deal with people with honesty. And uh, don't try to be something you're not, yeah. because most people have a great bullshit detector and they know when they're being snowed. Mm. So and I. I try to I try to do that in all of my interactions with people in the community, uh, other people within the SAPOL. Um, people know when you're not you're not being genuine, and that does more harm than good. Without and doubt. I don't think you can be successful as a senior leader in any field if you aren't genuine. Agreed. If you had a time machine, where would you go? Back or forward? Um, you had one trip, back or forward. I think I'd go forward. Yeah. Yeah. How because 
<laughs> probably not too far. Maybe um, I think we're in such a, a an interesting time right now in in human history. Yeah. You, know, you can find out what happened in the past. You know, unless you want to live the experience, yeah. why would you go back? Whereas having some ability to see how this current mess is going to unfold. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be really yeah. interesting. You, you look at look at the challenge. Get away from the economy. Get away from, you know, uh, the cost of living and uh, um, uh, energy prices. But start to look at you know what what's going to be the impact of this green agenda. You know, and mm. the shift away from fossil fuels. How's that going to impact on our communities? Uh, how how society is going to shift? We see more people moving from regional locations into. Um, uh, built up urban areas, I, I just think we're at a point in time where things are really sh- shifting quite significantly and maybe my, maybe I should say I would go beyond where I'm probably going to live to mm-hmm. so I can see how things look after that because I'm going to find out eventually yeah. uh, in the time that I'm going to be here. Yeah. So take a couple of steps beyond that to yeah. see what it looks like. Then you know when you're going to live to, and that's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, <in itself. laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think we can all, yeah, all going well. It's, yeah. it's, Just I, say I, two hundred years because you know yeah, either way. Exactly. That's right. Let's say I've got, I've got more behind me than I have ahead <laughs> that's of me. Right. If your house was on fire and your family and pets, everything was all safe. What's one item you'd run back in and save? My bike. Your bike. <laughs> <laughs> although, what type of although bike is it? Uh, a Cervelo. Oh yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Bike. Um, I should reflect on that though, because if that's lost in the fire, the insurance company will pay for a, a new bike. So, <laughs> it's wrong. if it's insured, uh, probably uh, maybe my Kindle. Yeah, 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 I can buy another one. I think, well, so. And you're, it's all on your Amazon account. So you yeah, just yeah, it. yeah. These are the rash decisions you're making. Yeah, in, no photos, nothing. Uh, look, Family heirloom. Is it that they're all digital now yeah, too? Digital, yeah, that's right. Mm. If you had once and, and I'd probably perish in the fire because if I look for the box of old photos, I, I can't remember where they are. So <laughs> it's in the attic. Yeah. yeah. If if you had one superhero power, what would it be? Um, I'd have trouble choosing. Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. Invisibility would be great. Yeah. yeah. Creepy. <laughs> oh, see that that says more about you than it does me. I was thinking about being able to just dis- <laughs> dis- disappear into the yeah. crowd. So. <laughs> Things are getting too hard. I'll just I'll just go invisible. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. you're right. Invisibility would be cool. I mean, yeah. It's one of the. It's just um, yeah. I always throw that in whenever someone says yeah. just to throw them off a little yeah. bit. I'm a bit worried about you now. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, and it's disgraceful. Um. <laughs> I'm not saying that in front of the police commissioner. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your uh, now? You have to. And I don't care how long we sit here. Okay. But surely, yeah, I'm sure you'll cut the the, the stony silence out. <laughs> You're a father of five. What's your best dad joke? Uh, well, there's probably a couple. But, yes, uh, my, this is my go-to would be um, my friend David lost his ID. Now he's just Dav. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's I actually good. store dad jokes on my phone. Oh, do you? Yeah. Can you, have you got any more? There's going to be one more. Um, <laughs> do you actually have a friend called Dav? Dave? Yeah, I do. David, I do. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. You've said that to him a thousand times. He loves it. He <laughs> thinks it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about going into more jokes. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an amazing, amazing chat. Um, thank you for agreeing to come on first and foremost. But, and, but kudos to you and the team and everything that you guys have been doing and have, you have done, especially over the past couple of years. I don't, I don't want to discount 
your career in place mm. just for the past couple of years. But it it has been, and like I said earlier, it has been really great seeing such a calming influence on the TV and 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 having belief in the person who is the state coordinator and going. Actually, I think we got the right person in in that spot. So thank you for all that oh, you've done. Thank you for that. But let me finish by saying. I had that profile position for COVID-19 but the people that were working with me and for me uh, right across the organisation deserve due credit and really importantly the community of South Australia. Mm. Like you think about what we imposed on almost every single person who lives here and the willingness to play their part Mm. made it possible for me to do what I did. So. You know, I don't think that could happen in too many places around the world. No. We, we should be proud of that as a community. No doubt. And I think we should never discount – and we, I don't think anyone is discounting the team that you had behind mm. you. The, the leader is only as good as the team. Absolutely. And the people that he, surround, he or she is surrounded by. So, yeah, mm. well done to, to everyone in the organisation and the broader community. Thank you very much for your time. We'll Thank continue you. watching with uh, eagerness how your career unfolds from, from here on in. And, um, yeah, look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask, though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate, and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best. All the best.